Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, and instructor at Rocky Mountain University, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute. Right on. Yeah. All right, folks. We have quite a bit of housekeeping to do. Uh, there's some mail coming in, uh, or rather news. There was one piece of mail, but I'm going to table it till next time because it's it's got Phil Stevens written all over it. So nice. um, the reason Phil isn't here, everyone, is simply because of timing. Uh, yesterday, I had some university duties, and so Dr. Nelson was good enough, right? We're just going to make this happen essentially right before we publish it and put it online. So um, housekeeping first. First, uh, I wanted to say thanks. We got listener editorial submissions from two people, RJ and Barry. And you can see Iron Radio growing from a couple of different perspectives. And this is one. Uh, we have had very few unsolicited um, submissions. Uh, so, but it's a good time for me to sort of announce this. So if you are a listener and you have something to say, um, an opinion, right, uh, a new study that you want to discuss or anything like that, maybe uh, an experience in the gym, you can do that. If you look at our homepage at ironradio.org, there's actually a section for, I think it says your turn, and it's listener editorials, and there's actually instructions. If you click on it, you go to the bottom of the page there, and it will tell you uh, what we sort of expect. It very It helps a lot to write it down, you know, write down maybe three or four paragraphs, and then just record them with your phone. Uh, back when we started Iron Radio, it was, it was actually quite challenging to get decent recordings, but phones are so good. I mean, Mike, you know, there's been a few times we were at yeah. con conferences, you just set the phone in the middle, and like you and Josh Cotter and I, or, and it's like, that's really quite good, you know? <laughs> so phones do a pretty good job, and if you want to do an editorial, uh, you can. So, uh, again, look at the guidelines. The point is, it is sort of editorially reviewed, like not just anything we're going to put on the site, but, you know, toss us an email uh, like RJ did and say, hey, what do you think of this? Uh, now, you got to give us a couple of weeks to review it. Uh, but I would like to build out that portion of ironradio.org, a little more community engagement and that sort of thing, because we have a lot of people with cool experiences or expertise, and that's what those listener editorials are meant to do. Anyway... Uh, so, yeah, thanks, guys, for sending those. Uh, in fact, one last little tidbit. As Iron Radio continues to grow, I would love to see enough supporting members or donors that we can actually pay a small amount of money. So students or people who want to get their first sort of something for the resume even, you know, that you you had uh, some instructional material or, or an editorial submitted to a website, and, you know, there was a bit of editorial review. It's not going to be like peer review, of course, but um, – and then we could literally like toss you $50 or some small amount of money to say, hey, thanks for that, right? We're not there yet, but uh, we are growing, so uh, stay tuned on that. Um, what else? Kayla, the Iron Radio intern right now, she asked me to pass along that uh, 
we are going to do a contest. I mentioned this briefly, but in February, uh, what we would want to do is basically um, mass meals, right? So before we head into dieting season, arguably we're already in dieting season if you want to be lean for you know, early summer, but uh, sort of a last hurrah. If you were to send a recipe with a photo on our Facebook listeners page and then either Instagram picture or tweet it and mention Iron Radio, that's how you enter and we'll think of something cool uh, for the winner. We'll decide on the winner. There might be a random element. It might be just one just really stands out. Like, that is a mass meal, baby. And then we'll pick that, and then there'll be some rewards. We have access to some cool things. We could put logos on, aprons, and something kitchen-related maybe because it's about it's about food, right? So look for the February Mass Meals Contest. Uh, we'll announce it here on the podcast, of course, and it'll go on the Iron Radio Facebook listeners page. Yeah, um, one of my favorites lately has been uh, Moose Tracks ice cream, which is the ice cream with the little uh, chocolate-covered peanut butter things in it. Oh, yeah. And then you add uh, one scoop of, like, a chocolate casein protein and one scoop of a vanilla protein, kind of mix it all together. So you get your 40-plus grams of protein and some tasty carbs before dinner, or before bed, actually. So it's been quite good. Ooh, sounds <laughs> decadent. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, meat dishes, savory, sweet, whatever, yeah, whatever trips your trigger, right? Uh, okay, what else here? We have several audio thank yous that we can send out to people who are supporting members or significant one-time donors, we say. Um, if you haven't gotten one of those and you, you ask me for one, just, again, through ironradio.org, you can ask again and I will send it. I did my best. I did two sweeps through pretty much everybody. But we have things like um, Dr. Cordero did a thing about if you want to do your own blog or podcast, you know, how do you how do you do it with quality? How do you do it like a professional? Um, that's free. All you have to do is ask. If you're a supporter, you know, it's on our system. Send an email and and we'll get that out to you. There's that testosterone boosting seminar about realistically boosting testosterone within a normal range and what that might mean and how you might actually do it instead of wasting money on a, some of the supplements out there. Um, there's even lab notes. So during a coffee project that I did over the last year, literally on the way to the university, I would record stuff. And, you know, like here's what we're doing today. It's very raw, right? Because it's literally like 4.15 in the morning. <laughs> you want to hear me being <laughs> kind of cranky. Uh, but it's very real. It's what it's a small university approach, but it's a real, you know, research project. And, you know, what are the barriers that we faced? How does research, what do we have to consider when we analyze this stuff? So if you like the science side, we even have those lab notes. So there are different things that we can send you as thank yous, in addition to some of the mugs or the little... Uh, training journals that we sent out uh, and things like that. So, okay, that brings us to our news. Uh, Strength and muscle sport news. One of the things that I want to mention is from a news perspective, uh, I am curious to get feedback about having a guest on. Now, this is sort of science related, but it's also in a, sort of food related, but. Uh, that Dr. Cordero that I just mentioned, she is sort of an amateur mycologist. So she's really into different kinds of mushrooms from health and culinary perspective. And uh, she was showing me some articles 
about how they can help with neuroregeneration and anti yep. anti cancer and and I know a lot of powerlifters are very into nervous system recovery and it, it, you have to be very careful you know there's so much nuance to it I didn't I didn't realize I mean from not just the species of mushroom but how how to prepare it how to harvest it she goes out on little field trips sort of and harvests them and uh, she's gone to medical like mushroom seminars and things like that and. So if you're interested in something like that, delving into one of these rare dietary components like different kinds of mushrooms and what they might do for your health or nervous system and can they help prevent overtraining, I mean, we, we would speculate almost for sure, but it would be fact-based. Let me know and maybe we'll have her back on because I'm trying to coax her because she's like, no, I'm an English professor. I'll tell people how to write. I'm like, well, you know, you're neck deep in this stuff. So if there is interest, let me know and we'll we'll have an episode on that. Yeah, I think that's very fascinating. I know another guy who runs uh, one of the largest uh, suppliers for uh, mushroom supplements and goes to China and has his own facility and stuff, too, if people oh. are interested more on the manufacturing-type side, too, because, yeah, I agree. The short version is I almost did a mushroom supplement product almost a year ago and spent a year and a half researching it, and I ended up canning it and not doing it at the end because it wasn't what I thought it was, and... Even after spending weeks looking at it, I almost got hosed. <laughs> yeah. If nothing else, it's a fascinating, like, um, how can we use ab abuse this in a sports nutrition kind of way? Yeah. You know, because there's a whole community built around this stuff, this, you know, mycology kinds of stuff and using fungi for, for health reasons. And obviously, you've got to know what you're doing. You're poisoning yourself. So, yes, yeah. Don't use the wrong ones, right. especially if you're picking them yourself. <laughs> oh, right on. Yep. So, uh, yeah, maybe we'll get him on as well then. You know, we can try to explore that topic. It's I love to uncover, you know, different closet topics like that that could be a real boon for certain people, right? So Yeah, and mushrooms are becoming a more popular product now too, especially in terms of uh, supplements. And unfortunately, a lot of them on the market are not very good. There's just an article in Nature a couple of months ago showing, I think, Five out of 19 samples they tested uh, passed their their testing criteria. And the guy I know, he supplied three out of the five. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> so it's Perfect. Like, mm, that's, that's not good odds. <laughs> yeah, good for us, though, since we have access to him. Right. And, you know, that's yeah. I think that's what we're trying to do on the show, right, is we'll do some of the work so you don't have to as a listener except just to, you know, absorb the education and yeah. maybe maybe consider applying it to yourself. So, Okay. Uh, there are a couple of articles here. Um, one was sent to me by a colleague, and this is something that Dr. Nelson and I are very familiar with, um, but I think it's a, it's a good uh, launching point for discussion. This is from Vox.com, Vox Magazine. The science is in exercise won't help you lose much weight mm -hmm. uh, by Julia Belluz and it looks like Christoph Hoberson. Um, but this is very new stuff. Essentially, what they're saying is that exercise accounts for a very small portion of your daily calorie burn. Uh, and a lot of times when you watch the evening news, you know, there's always discussions that just irritate me to no end about how long would you have to jog to burn off that bagel? And, you know, <laughs> as if exercise was anti-eating. You know, it was nothing yeah. but a calorie drain. But even from a calorie drain perspective, it's really quite small. So, um, Julia and Christoph go on to say one very underappreciated fact about exercise is that even when you work out, the extra calories you burn only account for a small part of your total energy output. So this is one of the reasons that Dr. Nelson and I, I refer to it as non-exercise physical activity or NEPA. Mike, I think yep. you call it NEAT, NEAT. right? Non yeah, same idea. Yeah, yeah, exercise activity thermogenesis. Yeah. Uh, 
but the whole point is they were talking about here's a quote that I just loved at the end of this article. The implication here is that while your food intake accounts for 100% of energy input, exercise only burns off 10 to 30% on the output side. So there's this huge discrepancy. And of course, what they're referring to is maybe 60, 70% of your calorie output is your basal metabolic rate, right? And there are several things that drive that. But, but essentially, if you just put your hand on your forehead, you can prove this to yourself. You are warmer than the desk or the chair next to you, right? The table in front of you. That's because oh, sure. you're always background burning calories, right? From your basal metabolism. And that's by far the largest impact. That's why things that affect your basal metabolic rate have a big impact on calorie expenditure and energy balance, right? So a lot of people would think that obese people, for example, all have very low resting metabolic rates or basal metabolic rates. That's not always true. Sometimes it's the thermic effect of food that's blunted, like they could eat a certain amount or eat and exercise some of the, the thermogenesis that happens. Sometimes that is blunted in people who are uh, very heavy over fat, right? So yeah, so generally we talk about 60 or 70% of all your calorie output is basal. Maybe 10%, like, uh, for example, of a mixed meal is just the energy that's required to sort of, you know, um, digest, absorb, process it, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, and physical activity, unless you're like a, a, a training for a marathon and you're pounding the pavement for hours and hours at a time, yeah, 10 to 30% maybe. So that's why they say it's very misleading, right? Because if it's input versus output, the input side, yeah, 100% of it is, in fact, what you swallow. But on the output side, yeah, maybe 30% of it might be your physical activity, right? And whether it's exercise or just carrying groceries or taking the stairs, whatever you're doing. Um, and again, that, that's why it's so misleading to a lot of people. They think it's a simple, like, one variable input-output when, in fact, no, it's not. So I appreciate these guys um, – kind of setting the stage for that because you get a lot of that this time of year people are guilty about the holidays and you know counting calories from exercise i mean i could spend 20 or 30 minutes on elliptical going quite hard maybe go through 300 calories you know in the little infographic and i think there's even a, a video that they add with this at vox.com but they, they say how that's like you know just one or two mixed drinks and you know that's all your effort only accounts for about that so yeah, I do think people lose lose perspective, right, on how many calories exercise actually drains during the session. I don't know, Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with the article. I agree with the, the stats you had. I mean, NEAT in general or NEPA is always going to be a lot higher, although I would like to see some newer data on that because I have a, a sneaky suspicion that it's gone down quite a bit. The source of a lot of that data, as you know, is usually a little bit older in some of the NHANES work and that type of stuff, which is always going to be delayed just by basis of, of getting it. Um, so I agree with the article. The one thing that I I don't like is depending upon the person's mindset looking at it, and a lot of times these articles are targeted towards you know, more of a lay population, is that it can have people just throw in the towel and go, ah, exercise is worthless. I knew it wasn't going to help me at all anyway. And they just tend to <laughs> use that as justification to go the wrong direction. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And then also there's data on exercise to show that over the long term that it may help re-regulate specific parts of the brain, possibly neurotransmitters, to make sure that your input and output are more tightly coupled together so that it may not be affecting the exercise uh, output portion, 
but it can then affect the input in terms of calories, right? So whether that's satiety or uh, affecting, you know, neat, how much you get up and move around when you overeat a little bit. And even with all those things, it's amazing to me that even people who tend to gain a little bit of weight, they, they call it creeping obesity, you know, a few pounds here, maybe five, 10 pounds at the max per year. And it's just fascinating to me that even in someone we would say that's a little bit dysregulated, they're still on their own, left to their own devices, equating input and output within single digit percentages, you know, so that to me is on the one hand amazing how well their body can uh, regulate that. Yeah. But I think looking at the long term effects of exercise and you get into habits and everything else, everybody knows that it's still beneficial. But while the article I think is correct, I think it can cause some people to throw in the towel and yeah, hopefully it'll people who are just trying to chronically exercise their way out of everything, maybe hopefully it'll get them to kind of pull back a little bit. Right. I, I, the reason I like it is because the, on the energy balance side alone, right, it's interesting to note that, yeah, the exercise, if you're just looking at it in numbers burned during this session, it, yeah. it's not going to do a lot. You're doing it for the adaptation, right? Like it's it's yeah. not anti-eating. Like you said, it could help slowly rewire parts of your brain or change your microbiome. Or A lot of people don't realize when you start to exercise, your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio in your muscles and your fat tissue it starts to lean toward a less inflammatory state just because you're exercising. You're not yeah. even popping fish oils, you know, or what about mitochondrial biogenesis, right? So, you, you know, uh, that's why I sort of, I always do like high intensity interval stuff. I mean, if I really want to get lean, I try to cash in extra with the, the slow, steady walks in the morning and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, you're building fat burning machinery like mitochondrial furnaces and then you get better at burning fat all day long. So it's not just that three, four, five hundred calories during the elliptical session. It's what you've built, you know, that's going to be ever present with you throughout the day, right? So it's adaptations. And I think that's that's one of the things that I don't like when the people obsess about, you know, eat, eat a donut and then jog for, you know, 45 minutes. Well, the, the purpose of exercise is not just anti-eating. It's to build structures. And I mean, let's face it, our listeners know that, right? We like to build more muscle tissue and that's visible. But there are lots of things that you don't see, like you said, neurochemical things and, and um, metabolic inflammatory things and, and mitochondrial things that you don't see. And so you are, you're literally different from the subcellular level all the way up. And it's not just for the calorie drain. Yeah, and I've seen with clients who are take it to the nth degree and are trying to quantify every little thing that they burn through exercise, they tend to not do so well. And obviously, like you've done competitions, Lonnie, if you're trying to get super lean, most of those people tend to only really focus on the nutrition component because the exercise tends to be more stable week to week overall. I've just noticed that people who get hung up on trying to figure out what is the most accurate way to quantify how many calories I'm burning. I don't know. They just seem to get kind of stuck and hung up on themselves when, you know, just doing things to equate more on the in intake side, I think appears to have a bigger bang for your buck. Yeah. And then we also tend to assume that by losing body weight is going to make us more metabolically healthy. And yeah, there's, you know, good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. So there's all sorts of horrible things you can do that you'll lose body weight real fast, but 
your metabolic health is going to go in the crapper too. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Doctor Willoughby, right, Darren Willoughby, he actually yeah. posted something on Instagram a few weeks ago that says you can't uh, out exercise a bad diet, right? And I think that's what he's trying to to get at. If if you're living on cheese puffs and donuts and chugging, you know, Mountain Dew or something or sugary pops and you know. Yeah, exercise by itself is is not going to do that. You have to actually look at both sides of that equation. So, um, okay, uh, this next one is very related, and I know you you're familiar with this, Doctor Nelson. But this is written by Brenda Kelly Kim. This is from LabRoots.com. Why weight is so hard to lose, mm. and I think this is something a lot of people maybe don't know. Uh, but uh, there's some new research that was done at the University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, essentially, it says some people who are overweight have fat that has become scarred, inflamed, and distressed, and this can make it more difficult to lose weight. Uh, Dr. Katerina Koss, senior lecturer at the university, at their medical school, examined samples of fat and other tissues from overweight patients and those who, um, who weren't overweight, essentially people who had undergone bariatric surgery or people who were always lean, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the main issue... Uh, she says, is oxygen supply. As fat cells enlarge, there isn't enough oxygen. The cells struggle to survive. This causes a certain amount of inflammation, uh, and that response carries over to the bloodstream. So a lot of people, again, maybe not as familiar that obesity is a low-grade inflammatory disorder. Um, diabetes or diabetes, um, kind of hand-in-hand with that. Uh, and I think this is interesting. In fact, I've seen data where you'll actually get macrophages, right? Inflammatory, uh, immune-related cells, they get embedded in very obese fat tissue so i i guess one of the things is don't let yourself become very obese because that the fat tissue on your body is literally different metabolically and even structurally than the amount of body fat that somebody just needs to lose 10 pounds you know uh the team at exeter found that a molecule called lysol oxidase or lox is more prevalent in obese patients and it's responsible for making fat suffer uh, and more difficult to manage. So again, interesting new research that I think does reinforce some of what we knew that uh, truly obese people have different adipose tissue. You know, it's more inflamed, it's a bit scarred, uh, and apparently, yeah, this is relating that to oxidative stress. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's that's super interesting. And you know, I remember years ago, I went to visit uh, Dr. Peter Rouse when he was in California, and I was asking him about fat loss. I said, well, what's kind of your, your biggest sort of number one tip for fat loss? You know, most people would say, yeah, you know, calories in, calories out, which, you know, I agree with that. Um, he's like, just get healthier. and It'll be much easier. <laughs> <laughs> and that always kind of stuck with me because I'm like, oh, you know, and I'll, you know, some of the clients that I've had a harder time with, you know, usually there's, you know, more on the side of things that are not as healthy, very stressed, you know, their sleep's not as good. You know, quality of food is a little bit lower, micronutrition's lower. So that always kind of stuck with me. And, you know, all the things in general, there's exceptions, right? You know, cocaine will make you lose weight, but probably not that healthy. But, <laughs> right. you know, most things like eating more vegetables, eating more protein, getting more sleep, getting more movement, you know, those are things that are all highly associated with metabolic health. Um, so I, with clients, that always kind of helped me go in the right direction of when I get really stuck, it's like, okay, so how can we make them healthier so that, you know, getting them in a caloric deficit is going to be easier at that point. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also why I'm a big fan of if you're fasted, you should primarily be using fat as a fuel. I just think that's a much more metabolically healthy place to be. Now, it is true that if you're just burning carbohydrates, you're still burning the same amount of calories. So, yes, you know, from a weight loss, calories in, calories out perspective, you know, you'll, you'll probably be okay. But in the back of my mind, I still wonder about that person's metabolic health, you know. And you talk to anyone who's done enough metabolic heart studies, there's always a couple of people you come in and just have them do low-intensity work, fasted. You know, your RER should be around 0.7, 0.75, you know, somewhere on the low end of the spectrum. It tells you you're primarily using fat. And there will almost always be a few people that are like, you know, 0.9, 0.95. They're fasted, they're doing low intensity, and they're just burning through a ton of carbohydrates. Weird, right? Um, yes. Yeah. So I, and there's, you know, some data to support that, but it's, it's almost one of those things that seems a little bit too obvious, I think, that just gets kind of glanced over at yeah. times. Yeah, you know, there's been a few abstracts, because I agree with you, like, calories in, calorie out, energy balance by itself, I think it's the beginning, but not the end-all, be-all of body yeah. comp and metabolic health, and if your body, I, you remember we talked, maybe even on the podcast, but I know you and I have spoken about this, I once had a student who was heavy, you know, she came in fasted, and I wanted to sort of illustrate the crossover effect of exercise, right? You oxidize yeah. fats at a low intensity, and as you start to move past panting and ramping up that treadmill, you'd shift over to a higher RER, like you're saying, and oxidize carbs. And she came in, and her fasting RER, which should have been in the point sevens, you know, like you said, fat mm-hmm. burning mode, I, she was like point eight eight, you know, uh, and I'm like – Okay, did, are you sure you didn't eat? Because because yeah. you may have eaten something. Because of course that'll do it too. Yep. And, and uh, no, she's like, no, I didn't, Doctor Larry. I swear. I'm like, that's fine. We'll, we'll let's try again. Uh, so we kind of retabled everything, and she came back in. Same thing, like point eight eight point nine zero. And then I realized it. You know, the dim bulb flickered on for me. <laughs> you know, she has essentially metabolic syndrome. Her background insulin levels are so high, she cannot switch yep. into a fat oxidizing, fat burning mode. You know, even after overnight fast. So, yeah, yikes. Yeah, and there's data from uh, Godecti and Helge and even one of the studies I did that shows your ability to use fat at a low-intensity exercise, you know, varies from like 20 to 93%. So it's extremely variable. And these were not athletes. These are just, you know, recreational exercisers, people they just grabbed and, you know, brought into the lab. Yeah. Um, So I think it's more variable and as you know type 2 diabetes everything else obesity starts going up we're just going to see that that number is probably going to change even more yeah there's i remember years ago reading some abstracts about not calorie balance but fat balance right so literally and of course this is tightly linked to calorie balance because you know nine calories in a gram of fat but literally they were talking about the number of grams of fat that you might burn in a treadmill session let's say it's 30 35 grams of fat um, if you're specifically trying to directly oxidize fat at a more moderate pace, whatever, um, versus the number of grams of fat that you eat, you know, in other words, it like you're saying, because I have the same gut feeling, no pun intended that you do, <laughs> which is, yeah, directly oxidizing fat is important to you. It's not as simple as, oh, I burned a similar number of calories from carbohydrates. Mm, yeah, I get it, glycogen economy and all that, but at some point, I want my body to understand how to torch fat, right? And yeah, those people that are, they get that metabolically askew, they literally can't. 
you know, they just lack yeah. the mitochondria or, like I said, background levels of insulin or it's just very tough. Yeah, and there's a couple of studies showing that MFO or what's called max fat oxidation um, is associated with other markers of health. And, you know, the best way to do that is also highly associated with your VO2 capacity or VO2 max. So if you're a really high level of aerobic capacity, odds are you can burn through more fat than someone who's got a very low level. And we know VO2 max is one of the top three things that's a predictor of longevity. Mm -hmm. So it kind of indirectly falls in there, too. Yeah. Okay, it almost sounds like we planned this, my man, but <laughs> the next one is basically arguing, a, similar to the quote that you just shared about just basically staying active and eating well and you know how that can lead to metabolic health, but this is from the gut microbiome perspective. Mm. This is from um, the Institute of Food Technologist, IFT.org, uh, in their newsletter. It says, healthy youth and seniors have surprisingly similar gut microbiomes. Researchers at Canada's Western University and Lawson Health Research Institute and the Tiani Health Science Institute in China studied the gut bacteria in a group of more than 1,000 healthy Chinese individuals ranging in age from 3 to over 100 years of age. Wow. Um, they found a direct correlation between health and the microbial population of the intestines, uh, but there was little difference in the gut microbiota of individuals between the age of 30 and 100+. plus. So my, my bias it, before reading that might be that as you get older, there's some dysregulation, you know, and yeah. so many systems go awry. Maybe the gut microbiome is, is poor. It says, let's see, it begs the question, if you can stay active and eat well, simply having a better lifestyle, will you age better? Or is healthy aging predicted by the bacteria in your gut? Uh, says Gregor Reed, one of the study's authors, also professor of Western's uh, Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. Uh, quote, these findings are a bit of a chicken and egg question. Uh, yeah. and, and it's true, right? I mean, does the biome drive your your healthy phenotype and healthy appearance and performance and outlook? Or is that performance changing your gut phenotype, which then reinforces your healthy physical outlook, right? Uh According to Gluer, uh, again, involved with the study, uh, one of the emerging findings in the field of microbiome research is that what's significant about your gut bacteria is not necessarily which populations are present, but what they are capable of. It, it says that is what genes they contain. And then they go on to explain that there are different strains like E. coli, which can be anything from beneficial probiotic, you want them around, to pathogenic because they have different genes. Hmm. So that you know, so that's interesting. It's not just the species, but the genetic differences within that species. And that should make sense. I mean, look at the, the genetic yeah. variants in human beings, you know, or across I mean, pick a, a given species of almost anything, deer or turtles or birds, or there's gonna be a fair amount of variation there uh yeah so and, and that was sort of an education for me right that it's you can't just blame a particular species because let's face it there are certain strains that a lot of people carry around and it could be e coli h pylori right which has been linked to ulcers mm -hmm. and things like that but a lot of people have to carry that around but literally what kind right what is what are the genes expressed or what are the the uh, capabilities of that particular variation of that strain 
so and I mean that opens up a whole new level of complexity like oh god you know so yeah. you can't just say you yeah. want these populations of bacteria to go up and these to go down we're sort of back to well if you're very healthy maybe the gene profile of that particular strain of bacteria is good whereas in someone else who's very slovenly I don't know and doesn't you know take care of themselves and they might have similar populations but they're expressing very different uh, proteins and you know and things of that nature well, then you get into the epigenetics, right, which is what are you, you know, back to diet and exercise, right? Maybe some people are more predisposed to go one direction or the other. Maybe some people will find benefit more from endurance training or weight training or high fat or high carb or, yeah, I think it's, and in this study too, it's always hard, like you said, to determine is it cause and effect. You know, obviously it sounds like they're highly associated with each other, which is probably not surprising to anyone. You know, but trying to then tease out, you know, are you, like you said, healthy because of your gut biome or because you're healthy, your gut biome is better, which the latter we kind of already know. I think the question is if you have, if we could miraculously change your gut biome, which, you know, we've talked about fecal transplants and things in the past, you know, how much of an effect does that have? And usually in those populations or, you know, have some disease or something they're working around, too. So it's it's harder to kind of sift through everything. It is. And, you know, the cop out with these cause effect conundrums is almost always that they're probably mutually reinforcing. You know, sure. like you said, you sleep well, you eat lots of vegetables and and things like that and, and you exercise. Yeah, you're you're setting the stage with your gut bacteria. I do think the lag when we talk about difficulties of, of fat loss, like some of those earlier mm -hmm. articles, I think a lot of it is because you're giving your gut microbiome several weeks to actually change its outlook. You know, it's not so much like you're radically rewriting the, the populations of which bacteria are going up and which are coming down, but if they are in fact reinforcing it, right, whether it's appetite or mood or body fatness or all the things that the gut biome has been linked to, that's not going to happen overnight. It's not just calorie yeah. balance, right? Calorie balance takes a long time. I mean, you want to drop 10 pounds of fat, 35,000 calorie deficit you got to get in, essentially, if, if you just look at the numbers. Yeah. So if you're burning 100% fat. Yeah. And that, right. That, exactly. If you're burning 100% fat, then you can do that calculation. At the same time, I think another, another lag, other than just the laws of thermodynamics like that, you know, the physics of burning through you know, getting in that kind of a deficit is, yeah, you, it's going to take a while for the gut microbiome to re-tune, um, you know, itself and in, in however exactly that's done. So, yeah, it's part of the lag, I think, at least I suspect. So Yeah, and I have this thing from engineering, too, is that anytime you've got the longer a time lag is when you're studying any type of complex system – the more of a pain in the ass it is to figure out what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because yeah. stuff is more decoupled from each other. And then you've got multiple things that you <clears throat> chuck into there that have their own phase shift and time delay and all that kind of stuff. Um, which is why in a separate tangent, like diseases that have a super long incubation period, uh, like mad cow disease and stuff, it's from a prion. Ugh, that stuff like scares the piss out of me because the incubation period is so long mm -hmm. that if anything ever did happen, trying to track or have traceability of what happened, oof, really, really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah, like back to the initial exposure of some, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, well, there's there's some of the 
um, news that's been circulating around on, in our part of the world. Uh, one last bit before we go to the break, and I've been remiss in not explaining to everybody. After the break, the topic is going to be, uh, we're going to call it the science of the cycle. And I don't mean like anabolic steroid cycles. I mean <laughs> menstrual cycle. Uh, we reached out to some people who are more familiar. In fact, uh, female researchers or professionals uh, who are familiar with some of these things so we can get some input for our female listeners and male listeners too. I mean, uh, look, I mean, Phil, a big portion of his team are women. Yeah. So this could be beneficial from a coaching perspective if you coach women as well. Uh, like what what time of the month, and you, I mean, can they manipulate their menstrual cycle? Do they often try? Uh, what, what might that mean to power output or reflexes or so? You know, it's just a little bit different. I always laugh about guys who are sort of just, you know, throughout the course of a month, we're sort of testosterone, just like this like line, <laughs> you know, flat line. I mean, it goes up and down diurnally, but, you know, throughout the yeah. month, you're not expecting these sweeping changes. And, and women do have that. And, I mean, could that be an advantage? And so that's what we'll do. We'll have a briefer topic after the break, but something about the science of the cycle. And I'll try to share some new research. And, you know, we'll get um, these ladies uh, explaining a few things. Um Last up, uh, I, I forgot this in the housekeeping, but I mentioned uh, the intern Kayla. She's actually posting a few things to an Iron Radio account on Instagram. Uh, she's an exercise physiology grad student, so uh, it just helps us reach out. So please try to support her as she does some of that stuff. So uh, she's not professing to be some pro powerlifter or anything like that, but um, she's getting more and more into the weight sort of thing. She's always complaining lately how sore she is and stuff. It's kind of funny. So, um, but try to be supportive of that, uh, listeners. It's just kind of a heads up, and it helps, like I said, engage the community a little bit more, and you know, expand what we do and that sort of thing. So, uh, okay. Cool. Well, uh, thanks again, uh, Miguel, for the yeah, anytime weird recording. Uh, I always count on you. And then uh, we'll turn it over to um, the ladies after the break. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. 
but over the years there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, folks, we're back. We're going to check in with uh, a couple of women who know more about these things than Dr. Nelson and myself and and Phil, at least from certain perspectives. Um, the first one is Dr. Kelsey Scanlon. She uh, is going to review a few things about the prevalence of women in sports at, at various levels. And then her recent dissertation that literally looked at power output, like are women more powerful at certain times of the month due to hormonal reasons and menstrual cycle reasons and things uh, of that nature. So we'll start with her and then we'll, we'll move on to a few other quotes. Thank you, Dr. Lowry, for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of this conversation. Recently, I finished my doctoral degree and my defense was involving research pertaining to females and not necessarily the stretch reflex, but overall power output. This is a really important conversation because throughout my dissertation, I cited a report from the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, that indicated how female athletes and teams have been increasing since 2003. And in 2008, the average NCAA member school sponsored on average 17 teams teams, eight for men and nine for women. Um, in addition to not only the collegiate level, but also the Olympic level, the International Olympic Committee in 2016 cited that since the 1964 Tokyo Games, the percentage of female athletes has continued to rise. And in the Rio de Janeiro games in 2016, 45% of the nearly 10,000 international athletes were females. So this is a very important conversation as we're not only seeing the prevalence of female athletes increase in collegiate athletes, but also at the Olympic level. The focus of my research looked at upper body and lower body power output throughout the menstrual cycle. So I recruited 11 females and tested their upper body and lower body power output on days 1, 14, and 21 of the same menstrual cycle. For upper body power output, I assessed my variables using a bench press weight of approximately 50% of the participants predetermined one repetition maximum. The variables that I did look at were peak force. The variables I included within the research were peak force measured in newtons, mean force in newtons, peak watts, peak power, 
peak power and mean power recorded in watts and peak velocity in meters per second. The statistical analysis did not yield statistical significance for peak force, mean force, mean power, or peak velocity, but I did see a trend in peak power across the three time points. What this means is the females weren't necessarily producing more power at any given point of the menstrual cycle. And this is important because though we know estrogen has some protective mechanisms with recovery or not feeling as sore, it didn't necessarily indicate that the female produced a greater amount of power or a greater amount of force in that 50% of the one rep maximum at any given time throughout the menstrual cycle. As for the lower body exercise, I had the females do a Wingate test, which is a very intense anaerobic test where you cycle against 7.5% of your body weight. And it's a 30 second test done on a cycle ergometer, a stationary bike, um, where you have a very short warm up, just pedaling against zero resistance. And then for 30 seconds, that additional 7.5% of your body weight force is applied for you to cycle through uh, for the duration of that time. The variables that I analyzed were anaerobic capacity, peak power, mean power, fatigue index, and total work. There were no differences, no statistical differences, at least throughout these variables. So what this means is that at three time points, the very beginning, the very middle, and then towards the ends of a single menstrual calendar, my female subjects did not overall as a group yield higher results in any of those anaerobic variables at any given time of their menstrual calendar. You may ask, well, maybe they there was a difference in motivation to exercise. You know, you can put yourself in their shoes, maybe day one of a cycle, you're, you're not feeling like you want to give your best effort, which is a great point. I had asked them subjectively how they felt, what was their motivation to exercise on a scale of one to seven, and I did not see any difference across the menstrual cycle um, in those readings either. Our next guest is uh, Kayla. We mentioned her as the Iron Radio intern. She's a graduate student in exercise physiology, and she knows Dr. Scanlon, and she's done work with the stretch reflex before. So that's an important part, of course, of uh, ballistic-type lifts and power and explosion. So I asked her to actually do a little lit review and find what's out there uh, when it comes to the monthly cycle and how it might affect performance. All right, so to begin my response, I'd just like to say I wrote this instead of going to the gym due to being sore from leg pressing close to 200 pounds and spent a half hour completing interval training on the treadmill yesterday. Hashtag gains. So to answer the first question, this topic is one that has not had a huge research presence in due to only three research articles being published on the topic alone. Don A. Lowe et al. decided to study the mechanisms behind estrogen's effect on muscle strength in females. Their hypothesis was that estrogen will have a positive benefit on muscle strength and that the underlying mechanism involves estrogen receptors to improve muscle quality more so compared to quantity. He specifically analyzed through a systematic review and meta-analysis that postmenopausal women who had received hormonal therapy had about 5% greater strength than those who do not receive any treatment. Hormonal therapy helps to improve the function of the existing muscle, improving muscle quality. 
Casey et al., on the other hand, decided to study the muscle stretch reflex across the menstrual cycle study to hopefully receive and better understand about the hormonal side that is brought out from the cycle to see if that this is the main reason why for women having a quicker and natural stretch reflex compared to men. Their hypothesis was that the muscle stretch reflex would fluctuate throughout the cycle and that the lowest response would correspond with the peak's concentrations of estrogen. Observed that the muscle stretch reflex response of the RF varied significantly across the menstrual cycle in both groups. The RF muscle stretch reflex response was 2.4 times lower during the periovulatory phase compared to luteal phase. Con they concluded that additional research would need to be done to clarify the exact relationship between sex hormones, anterior near lack anterior knee laxity and muscle stretch reflex response and to determine the specific origin of the change along the monosynaptic reflex arc. To go along with your second question about um, hormones, according to the research that has been done, researchers say that estrogen has a relative relation to muscle re reflex. They say more research needs to be done, and that is why I'm about 98% sure that I will be conducting this research for my master's thesis to have a better understanding and hopefully correct some limitations that happened in previous studies. Um, personally, being a woman, that I say to manipulate these changes if I were in competition would be to track my cycle completely every day from beginning to end, starting at least six months prior to competition. That way I can get a better grasp on, you know, what phases I'm in, where my peaks of estrogen are, etc. This way, estimating estrogen levels would be high for myself to know when I should be increasing my training and so forth. So I hope for you ladies out there that some of this information can be beneficial. Um, I highly recommend reading the research that has been done if you're able to access it. Um, if not, look soon and possibly a year. In about a year, I will be conducting some of this research and hopefully be publishing it somewhere. Thanks, and this is Kayla. Have a great day. Okay, so to round this out, I just wanted to pull a couple of papers about the prevalence of women who purposely manipulate their cycle for athletic or even convenience reasons, uh, how much mood might change, like what does the science say across the course of a month, uh, from normal mood swings to actual disordered ones, essentially. Um, let's start with a paper by Schomburg et al. This is from the International Journal of Sports, uh, Physiology and Performance. Uh, it's fairly recent. This is a 2017 paper. Their purpose was to look at menstrual symptoms, uh, how they're commonly cited barriers to physical activity in women, and essentially what women do about it. So they looked at 191 recreationally active women and 108 competitive women. Uh, and here's what they found. The majority, 74% of oral contraceptive users reportedly uh, deliberately manipulated menstruation at least once during the previous year. So it does look like something that's fairly common. Uh, there could be lots of reasons for this, right? Simple convenience, maybe they're doing it, for, maybe they do have a, something performance-minded uh, going into that, but uh, it says the most cited reasons for manipulating menstruation were special events or holidays, uh, convenience, so convenience was 54% of the women. They'd purposely manipulate when their period occurred uh, with the uh, oral contraceptives, and then sports competition, 54%. So more than half of women manipulating their monthly cycle specifically for sports-related reasons. Uh, conclusions in this paper, menstrual manipulation 
through extended oral contraceptive regimens is common practice in recreationally and competitively active young women for a range of reasons. So uh, if you're someone who does manipulate your monthly cycle with birth control pills, uh, you're not alone, according to this paper by Schaumburg and colleagues. Um, the next one is about variance in mood across the cycle. Uh, obviously, that could affect your mindset going into the gym and, or a competition. This is from Women's Reproductive Health, Philadelphia, uh, also very recent within the last year. Uh, they talk about premenstrual dystrophic disorder, uh, but essentially they say in this study, we examined changes in mood uh, among psychologically healthy young participants with regu regular menstrual cycles. Uh, and I found this interesting. The majority of the variance in mood was due to daily fluctuations and not so much just across the month. Uh, did not conform to a standard pattern of premenstrual rise or postmenstrual fall. Uh, they go on to say individual patterns were relatively stable from cycle to cycle. So that's why Lorenz and colleagues, variance in mood symptoms across the menstrual cycle, implications for premenstrual dystrophic or dysphoric disorder. So daily being more of a deal than across the month, according to that paper. And then the final one is from Hamstra and colleagues, uh, Journal of Psychometric Research. Um, this is literally less than six weeks old. Menstrual cycle phase and oral contraceptive use uh, influence mood and cognition. Uh, what they did was they looked at healthy PMS-free premenopausal uh, women. Uh, they completed online questionnaire eight times during two consecutive cycles. Uh, th these are the results. Both groups reported more shifts in anger in the first week of their cycle. Both groups, meaning uh, contraceptive users versus non-oral contraceptive users. Uh, it says, compared to non-contraceptive using women, the oral contraceptive users reported fewer mood shifts between depression and elation. Uh, conclusion, oral contraceptive users scored more favorably on measures associated with reproductive depression. Oral contraceptive users also showed a decreased affect variability, possibly indicating an emotional blunting effect again, in those birth control users. Uh, so interesting stuff about mood daily and across the course of the month, uh, this time from Hamstra and colleagues, Journal of Psychometric Research, uh, December, 2017. So there you have it, uh, a little bit of the science of the cycle from some people who study it in various ways and then myself just pulling a few papers to try to round out maybe some of the emotional aspects uh, toward the end. Having said that, uh, that that's an app. Uh, we'll see everybody next week. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for.
There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.